0: With the slang, sick and I'm destined for fame. do for the fam, not for the grand Stunting you're destined for pain. I do not front, I do not scam Put some respect on my name. Sick like a rain, clickin' a bang. Y'all gon' remember the name. What's up, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls around the world? I would like to welcome you back to the Real Talk with Zubi podcast. On today's episode, we have on a highly requested guest. He is the author of Cynical Theories and also the founder of Better Discourses. And this is, of course, the one and only James Lindsay. Welcome to the show, man.
1: Hey, Zuby. Glad how to be doing?
0: here. I'm, I'm great. I'm always great. Awesome, man. I know you've been doing a whole ton of interviews here. Um, there's a lot going on in the world right now, and I think a lot of people are seeking your commentary. So first question, how did you even get into this world, because I don't think this is necessarily what you intended to be doing.
1: No, I mean, I, I had, I got a PhD in math and had intended to be a math professor and it depends on how far back you want to go. But you know, I left the university. Part of that was because I was seeing things that were happening in the university. And at this point, everybody's like, oh, he saw wokeness maybe in like 2007 or eight. No, what I saw was a strong bias towards student retention in the university policy, like all of our faculty meetings were like, how do we not fail students? How do we not like, how do we educate them better? Like, how do we just not give them Fs? Mm -hmm. You know, let's make sure they get better grades so they don't quit. They don't lose their scholarships. They don't get demoralized. Let's keep them in and keep them happy and keep them paying. And I thought that this was kind of at odds with my educational philosophy. So I saw problems there. So it didn't take very much. You know, my family it wasn't a family like issue. It's just like the circumstances were like, Oh, it's uncomfortable to have to move around and do the whole chase academic job thing. And that was just enough extra weight to be like, no, I'm out of this whole game. So I left that and stopped being a professor in 2010. And through a series of deciding to get academic, like I started arguing with people online, basically as, as people will do uh, these days. And um, I started seeing these arguments about, systemic sexism primarily some systemic racism and i started seeing really troubling rhetoric around this and this had been in 2000 maybe at least 12 or 13 mm-hmm. already you know we we're seeing i was seeing things like you know one white woman telling another white guy that your story as a white man has been told uh and so there's no room for the white person's story anymore and i was like that doesn't make any sense you know it's like what are you talking about Circumstances are different than they were, say, in the 50s or the 60s or the 70s or even the 90s. And so everybody's stories are evolving. And the response was just, no, white men's stories have been told. And I thought that's not a good place. So I got really interested in what is this systemic racism, systemic sexism idea that people are using to justify these accusations and these kinds of claims. That got me and my colleague, I think you know Peter Bergoshen, mm-hmm. looking into this kind of stuff, and we were involved in the so-called new atheist movement. So we started looking at it like this is kind of works like a religion, and like it's like a very uh, fundamentalist religion. You know, it won't let people think certain ways. It has a doctrine, and we located that the the academic literature, the gender studies, critical race theory, et cetera, literature worked like its Bible you know, a set of scriptures. And that's not to compare to religious scripture, but in terms of like its functions, like that's just what they would appeal to. And that's actually the definition of fundamentalism is it's called intra-textuality in the literature, you know, the people who study religion. So when you say, why is this true? They just point to their book and everything has to be inside the book. Uh, So intra-textuality. And so I was like, this is, fitting that mold and it somehow, you know, Peter and I were like, it's somehow in this this academic literature and we tried to criticize it and we tried to criticize it and we just got called white men or something or told that (laughs) we don't understand it. A lot of being told we don't understand it. And so it was like, okay, let's just hoax this stuff. We finally decided to write an academic hoax that led to us writing a whole bunch of papers that got deemed academic hoaxes, but they got a little more sophisticated than that in the so-called grievance studies affair. That turned out to be wildly successful. We, I was so pessimistic going into that. I thought, man, there's no way this is going to work. I even told Peter, you know, I think it's on video. So sooner or later, you know, it'll come out and I'll be vindicated that I literally believe we would get zero papers. I thought this was a suicide mission to our careers. Mm-hmm. And it turns out we got lots of papers in. We Seven of them were accepted. Some sociologists said that four or five more would probably have been accepted past those had we more had we more time to have finished? If we'd kept writing papers, I'm pretty convinced that 90 plus percent of the new papers we would have written would have got in and we could make one every two weeks. So we could have gotten obscene numbers of papers, you know, possibly as many as like 20 or 30 a year in if we'd wanted to, <laughs> which is insane. That's like an entire academic career per year in these bogus fields. And so having exposed at the academic fields underneath all of this kind of what we now call woke stuff, were kind of just bogus. They're they're sophistry. You get to we started with our conclusion and made up the way to get there. That's not scholarship. That's what, but that's what we did. And it, those got in. They got awards. They got into high level journals. That's a problem. And so all of a sudden, you know, now we're put in this position where we had all this success and we did something and people saw it. And so it's like they the world started to call on us to explain it. And I feel like it's my responsibility if I'm asked to explain something to know as much about what I'm talking about as I can. Mm -hmm. So Helen and I, who did the project was Helen Pluckrose. She lives on your Island of, of uh, England Mm -hmm. Island over there where you have very primitive customs as Peter informs me. Um, (laughs) She, she and I wrote cynical theories together, kind of documenting the a part of the ideology of what we had learned and where it came from, its intellectual precursors. And so that learning process has not stopped for me. And as I continue to research, which is basically all I do uh, and talk about this, I'm continuing to peel back layers of the onion to understand it, but I never intended. I tell people all the time, kind of referencing a Seinfeld episode that I fell backwards into this. Um, There's an episode where, where they're describing Kramer and Jerry says that he falls backwards into success or money or something like that. Like, because his life doesn't make any sense. And I feel like that's what happens. I fell backwards into this weird position where I'm outside of cultural studies, explaining cultural studies, Mm -hmm. um, which wasn't, you know, I I just wanted to do math, man.
0: (laughs) I hear that, man. What is it that keeps you motivated with it? Because you really have dedicated, I don't know how much time you've dedicated a lot of time and effort and research to really. Going into these things, each individual word and the phraseology and the language that's used and dissecting that and explaining what it means, going on lots of different shows and podcasts and things like that, using your whole Twitter account really to combat some of this lunacy and this ideology. How do you keep How do you keep going? Because it looks tiring. I mean, I'm someone who combats it to a degree, but not, not full time in the way that you do.
1: Zuby, it's not my job to educate you. I'm tired. No, I, it is tiring, though. How do I keep yeah, motivated as a, it but matters? As a,
0: but as a person of color, you can't expect me to do the emotional labor. Either. No,
1: it's OK. I'm a non-practicing black. So I'm a person of color, too. <laughs> but
0: I think um, you're a white supremacist adjacent. So,
1: Well, I am. I'm on a podcast with you. <laughs> I've always wanted to talk to a white supremacist. <laughs> I, I'm all about diversity. Here, here we are. That's right. I feel very included. Um, No, how do I stay motivated? Well, partly that, right? The humor. There's so much opportunity for humor (laughs) and it's fun. I've told people for years that my favorite style of humor is the absurd. And this is just like the biggest, you can think of it like a giant gold mine of absurdity everywhere. And so it's really funny. Um, And that kind of keeps me going. But it actually also matters. It's like funny, but scary at the same time, because the stuff that this, like any institution that this stuff infects loses all of its credibility pretty quickly. If it's a company and it is a go woke, go broke. Yep. So you can see that it, it, it in a sense gets into things and it just spends down their social capital or whatever it is. And it, it kind of ruins whatever it gets into. And you know, as a society, we actually depend on some of these things. Like for example, I'm rather horrified seeing these articles in the new England journal of medicine. Now, you know, top medical journals There's one thing when we're pranking feminist geography journals, It's another thing entirely when you're seeing the same kind of material showing up in top medical journals, where you know that people's life and death hangs in the balance of not having BS in medicine, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's where it gets concerning. So uh, there are real consequences to watching this stuff run roughshod over our institutions. It's also everywhere I see it's ruining people's lives. When I first, you know, kind of started to gain a lot of momentum in the public eye. I've always left my direct messages open on Twitter, which maybe that's its own brand of courage. Mm -hmm. But um, I started to get just flooded. And I mean, hundreds, hundreds of messages of people telling me this has gotten into my kid's school. This has gotten into my workplace. This has gotten into my marriage. And these are the things it's doing. It's, this is how it's tearing my family apart. This is how it's tearing um, my children apart, you know, and it's just like, that's horrible. And so Anything that has that much influence, that's that bad, needs somebody that's trying to diagnose it and do something about it. And I'm glad lots of other people are doing so in their own ways, too. I don't feel like I'm doing a one man job, but it just felt like I need to dedicate as much time and effort to doing this as I can. And, you know, I get accused, of course, of being a grifter and which is funny because I made literally no money for the first like two (laughs) years I did this full time. Yeah. Um, I'm a terrible grifter, as it turns out. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got to find somebody who can teach me the ways of grift. Cause I don't know, I don't know how to do it, but, uh, this is, it's just, it matters. And I fell backwards into being a, in a position where I knew more about it than most people before it became relevant. And so once it started to become increasingly, obviously relevant to everyday life, it's like i have a choice do i just kind of like put my head down and go about my business or do i use the the knowledge that i was oddly fortunate enough to gain to try to do some good in the world and to alert people to what's going on and i thought that choice was obvious
0: mm-hmm. how do you th- why do you think it is that in a relatively like i know these ideas have history going back several decades but why is it that in the mid 2010s it seems these ideas and notions gender ideology critical race theory a lot of these different notions they became they made this very rapid jump to the mainstream um I think quite a few of these ideas certainly if you've been in the university world or even in certain like myself in the music world I'd seen some of this stuff floating around a little bit here and there but it was sort of fringe right it wasn't but it's just like In a very short space of time, it's just jumped everything, every single institution, every single corporation, it seems, has been infected to some degree or another. Every day, you just see another one fall, right? You'll just see some tweet come out from some organization that you used to respect, and it's just some nonsense about uh, um, black birthing bodies or chest feeding instead of breastfeeding, or uh, we now allow our. Uh, We now have a pronoun field for company emails or just everything from the police, the the army. I mean, the U.S. Army putting out (laughs) the U.S. Army putting out these ads where it's, you know, well, it all began in California and, you know, my two moms and this. I'm just it's very bizarre. I just don't get how it happened so quickly. So what do you think it is in, in this moment in time that it's just it's just come to a head?
1: I mean, there's actually, I don't want to overcomplicate the story, but I think several things happened at once and as huge shifts often require, right? Um, So one of the things that happened was the introduction of the internet and the spreading of social media. And that has to be acknowledged because it changes the playing field. Never before in human history have you been able to, I mean, we've always, people have always crafted personas, right? You show up, you have your public face, you have your private face, you know, whatever. People have done this throughout history, of course. But never before have you been able to wholly manufacture identities, multiple identities, if you want, on the Internet or on on some kind of a social platform where you can literally pretend to be anybody. You can pretend to be whoever you want. And if that gets deep enough into your head or if you have certain kind of psychological uh, dispositions, we'll say, which is to say psychopathologies, you know, the idea of being able to create your identity to maybe even escape from the the pain or the realities of your life is in a totally new phenomenon and the ability to, you know, create what the postmodern philosophers that we talk about in cynical theories, what they, I mean, they described something in the 1970s and eighties that wasn't really possible until social media came, which is to create this kind of fabricated reality. You know, I can tweet something on Twitter, for example, and might make, say two people upset, but those people might between them have 50 Twitter accounts and can create this manufactured appearance of a a mob coming after you, which that was never, you can't do that in real life. You can't make yourself look like 30 people, but you can on social media and they can look as diverse as you want. And, you know, all of a sudden you can start pretending to be a lot of things. And if that gets inside of your head, now you can start to maybe import the online world into the real world of your, of your own experience. So now maybe you start believing you can really construct your own identity, who you are as a person in all kinds of myriad ways. I'm this way online. Why can't I be this way in real life? So why can't I have some position like what they call trigender? Why can't I have all three genders at once? Masculine, feminine, and third gender, which is the one that's neither masculine nor feminine or both at once. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden you can start to do, or you, you know, I identify, we saw that thing on Twitter that went around a, a little while back that was, you know, I identify as a tree and my pronouns are what tree tree self or something like that, you know? And it's like, <laughs> this is a the phenomenon that is fed by the kind of postmodern experience that we end up having in social media where, mm-hmm. where, I mean, it's very real to say it's like the matrix that social media is um, because Uh, you like plug in and you're playing in this like artificial reality where there's this you that's separate and interfacing with it, but kind of in there, there is no spoon. You can make yourself out to be whatever you want to be. Uh, so that's one structural phenomenon that's going on. It's kind of a big thing. We also have the the wholesale political dissatisfaction with the previous regime, which we might call neoconservatism there's a big political shift going on and in in the name of populist movements, really. And so that's happening both on the right wing, which is what people usually pay attention to, but there were left-wing populist movements. Bernie Sanders movement was a left-wing populism movement. Uh, Occupy Wall Street was definitely left-wing populism. And it's easy to argue that what's happened is that entities like the Democratic Party and maybe these other kind of woke players have somehow managed to astroturf and co-opt those left wing populist energies and direct them in the, in the way that they're using them now. Uh, and that's where we saw those scandals around Bernie Sanders in say 2016, did the Democrats really like edge him out? What did they do? How did they co-opt his people? You know, how did they co-opt him? Now he's all of a sudden he used to be against a lot of establishment Democrat stuff and woke stuff. And now all of a sudden he's one of the people pushing it, you know, how did they co-opt him? So there's some kind of something going on there. And that's a big thing. There's a phenomenon structurally also where tons of money has been flooding into politics in a way that hasn't really been the case, and what the causes of that are are outside of my ken. I don't know why, but billionaires throwing around money to things they want to see brought into the world is at a very high level lately. Mm. The past ten to twenty years, higher than it that. was before. Mm, I yeah, I have a theory on that. that what aspect.
0: is it? My my theory on it is um so. I think it's a good way to distract people
1: mm-hmm. right? I
0: think I think it's largely a diversion and distraction tactic I think something mm-hmm. like Occupy Wall Street genuinely threatens such people right like that That's was right. a genuine threat They don't actually want people on you know both the left and the right uniting and going hey actually, Regardless of political ideology, like a lot of people are against those, you know, big banker bailouts and yeah. stuff like that. It was totally unfair, whether you're a, you're a capitalist or you're more sort of socialistic leaning. Either way, you're like, no, that's not that's yep. not how it's supposed to go. That's not fair. And all these people have been screwed. And now you've screwed these people over and you're getting away with it. Yep. So I think actually by throwing these sort of woke bones out there, it sort of appeases A lot of the people on the left by saying, oh, look, they put out a diversity statement or they they put out a statement like they're with us, whatever. So they're very easily appealed to and they're not coming after the more capitalistic intention anymore. And then the people on the right are sort of like, oh, well, we want to fight this woke ideology stuff because this this is stupid. We don't like this idea. And so now people are bickering and fighting over uh, pronouns and uh, rainbow flags and this and that and meanwhile these corporations are just making even more money hand over fist, gaining more power, gaining more wealth, consolidating it even more. I think something similar has happened in the past year and a half as well, where again, people are now bickering again over whether it's masks or it's uh the vax or it's this or that, and actually again, these corporations are slamming they they they're killing smaller businesses off. Yep. Uh yep. they're making more money than before whether you're Facebook or your Amazon or your Disney or whatever and i think they're kind of just laughing at the whole thing and by throwing these little bones out here and there they sort of keep everybody in fighting and people don't just go wait hang on a minute let's unite on this one and let's actually uh you know see what's what's going on here with these big organizations so that's my that's my personal theory on why some of this stuff is funded in the way that it is
1: no i think you're you're spot on with that um so all of these things and also the so-called long march through the institutions as they call it right so our our universities started to educate more and more and more in line with this uh our K through 12 schools in the US or primary schools and secondary schools started to educate more and more in line with this kind of ideology slowly infiltrating it from the, the plan, and it is a plan, It's the long march of the institutions, is actually a plan. That's one of yeah. the conspiracy theories, but they moved the left-wing radicals of the 1970s and 60s, who were very violent, moved into almost almost to a person, into education activism as their violent tactics became very unpopular. And so they had their the idea that if they influence the educational sphere. that they're they're now influencing the next generation of professionals. So with Mm -hmm. one generation down, 15 years later, they gain the upper hand because the professional world is going to start getting filled with people whom they've indoctrinated. And so that also has come to fruit about now or about Mm -hmm. 10 years ago. But then what actually mainstreamed it, because that was your question, was a series of, of events where they were able to take this narrative that's been building up in the academy for decades and it's, environment that's been operationally prepared, as I just described. And they were able to take advantage of a series. And I I identify kind of four key events uh, that led people to start to believe the doctrine. The first one is not, and I don't want to say it's the election of Barack Obama. I want to say that it's the phenomenon of the election of Barack Obama, right? So I'm going to take one step back from the election itself so what was the reaction? How did it get treated in the media? What were the narratives that were being pushed around it? And they were able to really say, oh, my gosh, look at this racist reaction from the South. And there was some. I don't know how much there was now because I don't know how much of it was a media nar- narrative, how much of it was real. But I saw some of it real with my eyes. So I know it was I know there was some. Mm-hmm. You know, I saw people wearing literally wearing T-shirts and having bumper stickers on their car that said it's called the and it'd be in all caps white house for a reason and it's like Mm -hmm. come on man you know what that what are you doing and so it was real there was some happening and of course Mm -hmm. the media we've now learned knows how to make a lot of money off of that so they probably ginned it up in order of magnitude past what it it probably was big and gross and they Mm -hmm. ginned it up in order of magnitude but the principle like if we're looking at critical race theory for example the principle idea is that racism didn't go away it just hid itself and sooner or later if you create the right conditions it'll unmask and you'll see it. And so they're like, look, look how people are responding to Barack Obama. And of course, you know, Barack Obama in his 2008 uh, election was very kind of hope and change and all this. And the tenor was a little bit different in 2012. You know, he kind of leaned into these kind of identity politics narratives that were kind of building up for whatever reason. He won the election. And uh, so there was, you know, the conservatives have a point that he was kind of feeding those narratives. I don't think he was that much in 2008. I think he was a lot in 2012, uh, different characters. So the phenomenon around that conveys this message to the public through the media, through what people are actually observing. Wow, maybe we're more of, we weren't ready for our first black president. People overreacted. We really were a more racist country than we believed we were. And the phenomenon of electing a black president has revealed it. And of course, that is It's one of those things. It has a grain of truth and it's not totally true, but it's not totally false. And it's what it is. So then what what do we have is in the midst of the Obama tenure, and specifically we see the the killing of Trayvon Martin in 2013. We see the killing of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri in 2014. We see the emergence of the emergence and I would say co-optation of the Black Lives Matter movement, which I believe started as a grassroots hashtag after Trayvon Martin. And turned into something that's, you know, has leaders who are saying we are trained Marxists, you know, a few years later. And so something happened there that's probably shady as well. But this was a huge phenomenon through 2014, 15 and into 16. And so that was able to push that narrative, especially that the police are fundamentally and our criminal justice systems are fundamentally racist, Mm -hmm. which Again, it's one of these things, there's some kernel of truth to this, and there's probably a lot that's misinterpreted, and there's probably a lot that needs to be looked at at the same time. So there's a lot going on there, and it's very difficult. These are things that are difficult to parse. They require cool, sober heads and lots of time and accurate data gathering and lots of careful, and nobody wants lots of careful when they perceive an emergency or they perceive some you know, moral catastrophe. And so cool heads careful data collection, understanding what's going on, carefully thought out reforms are not on the table in those kind of cultural moments. Mm-hmm. So this mainstreamed those ideas further, especially on the left, who's now much more convinced, oh, look how racist we were under the election of Barack Obama. And now we've got this police racism thing. So they, they pushed this ideology even further into the public eye. And then Donald Trump decided he was going to run for president and they decided to attack him on the line of calling him a racist. Mm -hmm. Just if we're talking about critical race theory, we can talk about whatever else, because they attacked him for being a sexist. They attacked him for being a misogynist. They attacked him for being you know, homophobic, which I think is probably not remotely true. They attacked him for a lot of things, for being ableist over the way that he would mimic people he thought were stupid, and it happened to do it to a to a disabled reporter. And it looked like he was mocking the guy's disability, which is probably not what was actually going on. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were able to, to, to push the ideas that he was, you know, basically the avatar, not just of every, po- not just a fascism, which they said he was like a little tin pot dictator, of course, repeatedly, but also of every possible systemic power dynamic you could imagine. And they just drove that. And I remember in 2016, writing about it, just driving that nail. Like, if all you have is a hammer, call him a racist. Right. And I remember writing an article, like people on the left, please stop calling Donald Trump a racist. You're going to make him win the presidency. I really didn't want that to happen. And they kept <laughs> calling him a racist and he won the presidency. And um, Then they spent four years, racist, 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 very fine people hoax, the whole thing about, you know, he's never disavowed white supremacy. turns out he did something like 48 times publicly on camera, but somehow they managed to bury all the footage. And it's, you know, even in the presidential debate last year, they were like, you've never disavowed white supremacy. And, of course, he looks like an idiot standing there on stage like, ah, He's got to be thinking, I did it like 50 times. What are you talking about? So they very effectively push this narrative that the, and and this is where Hillary Clinton's basket of deplorables thing comes in. Because if you listen to her talk when she said what a basket of deplorables contained, it's racists and sexists and all these kind of backwards regressive, as we, I guess the new word is Neanderthals for these people. It's Joe Biden's word for us, um, who have all of these systemic power, you know, things that they want to uphold and maintain. And So you had in the the, the scapegoat of Donald Trump the ability to blame everybody who supported Donald Trump for the things they were accusing him of. So all of a sudden, wow, 50 percent plus of the population is actually super racist, super sexist. They actually support these things. And the the the. Logic, if you will, is that no way he could have been elected unless people were secretly racist because they elected somebody who's obviously a racist, obviously a sexist, obviously this, that, and the other thing, obviously a fascist. And so Donald Trump really, in my opinion, made them show their hand too soon, but the public didn't know what they were seeing when when they showed their own hand and they were able to project it very effectively onto him and his base of supporters who were then believed very widely and are still believed very widely to left of center to just all be a bunch of racists. So the critical race theory narrative again is racism is just hidden beneath the surface. And so they're saying, look, we've exposed it. Um, and so I think that's how it all triggered. So that's three events. And the fourth one of course was the death of George Floyd last year, which took all of these narratives and tied them up in a nice bow and launched this stuff into a, what, what, you might call a moment of action, you know, um, strategically speaking, the way these movements work, you know, I talked, uh, on a podcast last night about it's top down, bottom up inside, outside. And I talked about the top down and bottom up. So I won't bore you with that, but the inside outside part is what it is. Um, inside outside means that you have to get people inside that are going to be, you know, that take up the idea and then you have pressure push from the outside. So you're going to squeeze this thing. You can think of it like an egg, like an institution or whatever is like an egg and you're going to squeeze it from the outside with a public pressure campaign. And that's like the George Floyd moment. And then the public pressure campaign arose. You start creating that public pressure. And then the inside part is that you have people inside who are then going to polarize that culture. Don't you think it was racist? What do you mean you don't think he was murdered? What do you think, you know, how dare you say that? And then when that internal culture cracks, the egg collapses and they can take over an institution. And so the conditions had been made perfect. They had just enough people over all this operation, operational preparation of the field in that moment of action to create those external pressure campaigns and have internal polarization allow them to rip everything apart. And it just took over everything in a very, very short period of time.
0: Why are so many people taken into it? Why do so many people find these notions and ideas irresistible irresistible i mean i find them i personally find them appalling on on multiple levels even on on a very basic level of just hey you know all human beings are created equal judging people based on their skin color is a bad thing judging people based on their immutable characteristics you know pretty pretty basic stuff stuff i would say is actually pretty liberal (laughs) yeah to to use the word word properly um but for some reason People, a lot seems like a lot of people who would claim to stand for that or to stand against racism and against sexism and against homophobia and all of this, they end up, I don't know if it's stupidity or lack of competency or it's inadvertent or it's intentional in different cases, but they end up embodying these things in various ways. And it's kind of, shoe-on-the-other-foot-ism, and it's like, oh, well, this happened this way before, so let's, let's switch it back the other way. I mean, the most obvious would be the, you know, just the normalization of, let's say, racism against white people and sexism against men in general, but white men in particular, right? You can go on Twitter or on the radio or on TV, and you could say something about white men or straight white men, that if you said about any other demographic, if you replace the word white with black or Jewish or Asian, you replace the word man with woman, whatever it is, you would be you would be rightfully condemned, right? You, right? you would not get away with that. You'd be you'd lose your Twitter account within twenty minutes. You'd be kicked off of this, you'd lose your job, et cetera. But there's this whole notion that, oh, well, because it's it's white men, it's it's fine. And in fact, there are a lot of people who are now even, you know, there are a lot of chills going on that make people afraid to speak out, but people are even afraid to defend white men, let's say, because they don't want to be called racist, right? If someone says something wildly egregious, just about, I don't know, white people, right? And I jump in and I say, yo, that's messed up right what am i gonna get i'm gonna start getting people saying oh zuby is uh defending white supremacy or zuby is this or what and you're just like bro like what is wrong with you like if you can acknowledge that it's wrong in this direction then what's with this oh so let's just do it back in the other direction it's it seems people are out more for revenge than actual equality that's what it looks like to me
1: No, that's actually true. And so there, I mean, there are multiple dimensions upon which I could answer your question of like, how do people get into this? Could talk about the psychological dimension. Could talk about Mm -hmm. a lot of different dimensions, but you are not wrong. The underlying thing that this ideology stirs up in people is what Nietzsche called resentment, which is a French word. That's kind of like, it's like resentment that curdled. It's like when you, Mm -hmm. you see, you know, that really like Great, rich, fancy dude or whatever, walk by and you're like just kind of a schlub and you see that and you look at that person, and you get that side eye and they were like, if the world didn't screw me over, I could have been him. Mm. Right. And you get mad at the world. It's that emotion so there's a lot of that and this ideology actually stokes that that's why they tell everybody that they're victims if they are held down by systemic power that's why they tell people that uh, that are alleged to be benefiting from systemic power that they're participating in this that they're complicit in this and it's to generate that feeling and that feeling is very motivating in a way to want to tear things down and generate the you know the 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 motive for revenge to to unmake or remake the um the order of the world so that it corrects for those, whether historical or present or both wrongs. And so there's an, there's an element there that's very much so based in vengeance. It's very much so based in anger. How does it actually get into people's heads? Like how does I mean, obviously you can think of somebody who's just having a bad run and he sees somebody's just ultra successful and he just sours so all of a sudden. You can. It's easy to imagine. Um, but most people aren't that way. And most people who are taking it up aren't that way. There are kind of two main things that are related to one another that it, the, the ideology also manipulates very, very effectively. And one of those is that the trait in psychology is called agreeableness. People don't want to disagree. They don't want to they don't want to be the one that's bucking the system. They don't, people are afraid to think for themselves and be different from the crowd and they mm-hmm. tend to be too agreeable. And so I was having a conversation very much, th- you know, kind of almost the same thing you just laid out and with Peter bogosian one day and he was talking about it and he was like, these people are smart. He's talking about people at the university that he works at working with pe- other professionals. You know, like, these people are really smart. How is it that they fall for these obviously stupid ideas and it just hit me and I was like, they're afraid that people won't like them. Yeah. That's what it is. And they want to, they, they want that social approval so much so that they'll start to slowly virtue signal in small ways to go along with that crowd under the trade of agreeableness. And every time you do that, you have to rationalize to yourself why you participated in something stupid. And every time you rationalize for yourself why you participated in something, you start to convince yourself that it was the right thing to do. This is what Jonathan Haidt talks about in in The Righteous Mind, about how we lawyer ourselves into believing. This is why one of the reasons why with the vaccine you know the more people they get to get the vaccine everybody who gets it i've watched so many people on social media they they were hesitant they weren't sure they got the vaccine and then the next like month all they do is explain why it was the right decision that they made to get the vaccine it's it's almost amazing to watch it in real mm-hmm. uh, real time and you know whatever you think about the vaccine is is irrelevant there's a psychological process involved here that's very important to recognize and it happens with the same ideology every time you do every time you decide to be like a little bit racist against say white people or sexist against men you know it's wrong people know it's wrong they know but then they have to justify to themselves why they did it and they imbibe that ideology a little further and that's um it, it operates on a vector of what what uh, Shelby Steele described as draining moral authority. They make people feel like they are not good people. They're not acceptable, that they're deplorables, if you will, that they don't have moral standing if they don't go along with it. The other thing it does, and this is particularly powerful and probably why it was so successful at taking over the, the universities, is that also by using this highfalutin, jargony language that I try to take apart and and parse out and explain by using words in non-standard ways that take some thinking about to understand how that word applies, um, to talk about things in terms of complicated systems that, you know, you have to think of the whole system at once to understand it all. That's all very complicated academic thinking. Mm. That requires on some level being fairly smart, being rhetorically savvy, being verbally intelligent. And so it has a power of making people feel stupid. Like they don't under, you don't even understand what racism really is. You only have this like Neanderthal understanding of racism and you don't really understand what it really is. It's really a system and it's so complicated. And then they say things that don't make sense. And you really have to be smart to kind of like figure something out about it. Like, because racism is a system, every single person could be not racist And the system could still be racist. There could be no racist attitudes, no racist behaviors, no racist, any people, but the system itself might still be racist. And you're like, what? Mm -hmm. And that requires, you know, a certain level of being able to believe, um, what what is the thing? Absurdities only an academic could believe or something like that. Right. Right. It takes a certain level of, of being able to like overthink a thing, which only academic people or whatever, or dweebs are going to do. And But those people, having spent most of my life as one, um, and finally, just in the past couple of years, finally shed that skin, uh, are terrified to be the guy in the room who doesn't know. Mm-hmm. They're terrified because if your identity is baked up and you're the smart person, you're the professor, you're the top student, you're whatever it is. To be the person who doesn't know what's being talked about is to threaten your identity at its very core. So they have to, oh, no, I understand the theory. I know the theory is right. No, I understand what you're saying. And they have to go along with it. And, again, the same process happens. And that's called draining epistemic authority. So they, they, they try to make people feel unlikable by taking away their moral standing. And they try to make people feel dumb. By talking in this weird, goofy language that's very difficult to understand and literally doesn't make sense and force people who are smart enough to try to, oh, I see how to do it. I understand to participate in their kind of, you know, as they say, reindeer games. Uh, And then once you've participated, you have to like justify to yourself why you're participating and it sucks people in. And so then eventually, you know, the narrative that they're sucking you into is that one that's teaching you resentment. It's teaching you that the system is actually screwing over certain people and maybe it's you Mm. or that you are somehow complicit in the screwing over of people. And how dare you, how dare you Greta Thunberg? How dare you, (laughs) you know, and it tweaks psychological and emotional, uh, knobs in people's people's minds and they they get when you the further in you get and this is one more feature the backfire effect once you get pulled into something like this and then of course you ask how do you get into it but once you get into something this is a this is something that they that's very is becoming very well understood is that if you become genuinely complicit in something that's bad right like if you're dead wrong about say Uh, I've been using the example around the lockdowns with with the virus because I know people who locked uh, it it struck me recently I know people who basically locked themselves in their apartment for like a year it wasn't the government telling I mean I'm I'm in Tennessee man I'm in one of these red Republican (laughs) states by like July last year it's like people were just kind of doing whatever we wanted and but I knew people who locked themselves in their apartment so this has a consequence right you've given away a year of your life I'm not saying right or wrong Maybe you are right. Maybe people who are skeptical of this are are wrong. Maybe you were right to lock yourself in your apartment for a year, but you've given away a year of your life. That's consequential. You've probably alienated some of your friends and family. That's consequential. So to say that you were wrong on something that was like that, you know, it's that sunk cost fallacy. Like You've dumped money into something and it's going to bomb and you just can't let it go. So you keep dumping more money into it. Same psychology is happening. So for you to come out, you have to admit, I messed up and that's real hard for people to do. Or I did something that hurt people. If it's so uh, that I went around and accused everybody of being everybody in my f- friends and family circle being a racist for the last <laughs> year, that hurts people's feelings. You would, you did something bad and yeah. it's hard to own your own um, failures like that. It's real hard. It's real hard. So I have compassion for these people who've got themselves painted into that corner because it's really difficult to sit down and own That you were actually, you got caught up, you got conned or scammed or dragged into or complicit or wrapped up in, whatever the right word is for your case, something that was bad and harmful and that you were actually participating in because you couldn't where especially where other people could, you couldn't see what it what, what it is for what it is. Yeah. You started being a racist, like that's huge. Could you imagine mm. that? Mm. Could you imagine like what it must feel like to like, oh yeah, whoops, I just got suckered <laughs> into being a racist for a year and a half where I thought that was like the worst thing in the world my whole life. Yeah. You know, admitting that you did that is
0: very difficult. Mm. I think another big problem, I agree with everything you just said there, and following on from it, I think what also exacerbates that? Is that society has feels like people have forgotten how to forgive,
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right?
0: People people are incentivized to dig in and double down, and to not take that humble approach because a lot of people are just not forgiving, right? It's like that's oh, right, right? That's some, one thing I find the most concerning about this whole woke cult thing is. You know they're digging up things that people said twelve years ago. They're digging up people who died a hundred years ago and pulling down their statues. There's no forgiveness. it's all just you know moral seeking some sort of moral perfection, and of course, nobody can attain attain this target. and so I think it also makes people even more vicious because they want to be the last person shot. Right. It's no, a circular, I feel you. Yeah. That's right. right. It's a circular firing squad and they want to be the last person standing, but they're, they're going to get to everyone eventually. Like all these woke uh, comedians and actors and politicians or what you've all got dirt on you. They've all they've all got dirt. They've all said something that um, certainly by 2021 standards is is yeah. unacceptable or they said something in private, which they wouldn't want to come publicly, which we all have. Yeah. You know, people are acting as if they haven't. And yeah. so rather than just saying, yeah, you know, I've said some messed up stuff before, or yeah, I said that thing 10 years ago, I've changed my mind or whatever, yeah, yeah. or yeah, it was just a joke and it's just, you know, and I think that's happened a lot this past year and a half because, especially with with some of these politicians and people who have been making decisions around the policies and stuff, I mean, in the UK, there is no reason, there's no logical reason in the UK for there to be any restrictions whatsoever at this point,
1: right? Mm-hmm, for the mm-hmm. past
0: several weeks, I mean, the the death count is in the single digits. Per day, single digits keep in mind 1600 people in the uk die every day the covid related death count which already is inflated is in the single digits 99 yeah. over i think over 95 percent of the vulnerable population is fully vaxxed everyone who wants it has had it can get it there there's there's no reason for there to be anything but because they've said certain things and they've gone with a certain narrative and they've hyped it up so hard People are just clinging desperately to it and they can't just be like, okay, like it's, it's over. It's done. Like, you know, maybe we, we, some of those predictions when we were saying, oh, you know, half a million to a million people are going to die in the UK, 2 million to 4 million are going to die in the U.S. Thank God they were, (laughs) thank God we were wrong. Yeah, right. People don't want to do that. This is the one that's weird. Yeah. People want it to be worse than it is so that it will justify What happened? You know, Texas opened up two months ago and everyone's there like, oh, my gosh, you know, like Texas is going to it's going to be a rise in cases and whatever. (laughs) It keeps keeps falling. All of a sudden silence. I
1: literally just had a conversation with somebody like two days ago in an Uber. And the guy was I was like, well, what about Texas and Florida? And he was like, ah, their day is coming. It's coming. (laughs) It's like, when? It's like, this is like one of those, you know, end times prophecies, man. When? What are you talking about? Yeah. But it's like, you can't let go of it because you have to admit, like, those lockdowns were a bad idea. Mm. And that's hard because, again, consequences, big consequences. And also, you know, say you're somebody like Fauci, right? And everybody says, oh, he just wants to stay on TV. Well, it's a professional catastrophe for catastrophe for him to come out and, and, and for people to be like, you know, you for him to come out and say, yeah, I was pretty much totally wrong for a whole year and really messed yeah. up the country. Sorry. Like, What's going to happen to him professionally? He's not just not going to be on TV. He's not just going to not have power. He's going to be in disgrace. Mm. He's never going to put himself into that position of disgrace. It's like the, the you know fifth amendment we have. Where you can't incriminate yourself or whatever. You don't have to incriminate yourself. <laughs> so he's, he's never going to put himself into complete professional disgrace. And so what's his option is to figure out some way to double down. But that per- forgiveness thing is huge yes. because like you said, this ideology is very, I had so many people. So many people reach out to me and tell me, I doubt this stuff about the woke. I'm skeptical. I think it's bad. I've changed my mind or whatever. I was in it and now it's like I've seen the error of my ways. Then yeah. they tell me, I'm so afraid to say anything because I will, I know I will lose half my friends. Yeah. I had a young woman speak to me recently and I'll be completely vague about who this person is because I don't want her to get in trouble. And she's at a university though. And she said, if people found out that I had coffee with you in a conversation, I would lose 75% of my friends overnight. Wow. And it's like, wow, that's amazing. But imagine what that does to you. Like that, that you have to sacrifice maybe half or three quarters of your social network mm. and you're going to be ostracized by many called terrible things like psychologically, even preparing for that's very difficult. And so that is again, one of these, I, this is one of the reasons that I actually think the ideology is evil because it encourages that. And that's, that's absolutely horrible. And it, I mean, Douglas Murray was very um, eloquent on it recently. I think he was talking to Tucker Carlson and he said, you know, those people aren't your friend. Yes, they sir. are, they're holding you back. They are only your friend if you behave the way they want you to behave. So they're not really your friend. Um, and you do have to start learning to kind of cut ties. And I'd say cut ties with an open door, though. Like, yeah, you know, come back when you get your head on straight, come back. But you're you're cutting this relationship off and that's your choice. And I, re- I I'm sorry to see it, but. Uh, you know, you're welcome back when, when you don't want to be so judgmental. Mm -hmm. I've valued our friendship up to this point, but that's a hard thing. And I've heard it. I hear it primarily from, from women Mm -hmm. of all racial backgrounds. And I hear it a lot from black men Mm -hmm. that their community will absolutely just throw them out. Yes. Family, friends, the whole thing. And this is, that's poisonous.
0: It very very much is. It it also highlights that I I think a lot of people have, when I hear stuff like that, while I understand and I empathize and I have sympathy, I'm also like, man, like p- you need to pick your friends better. Yeah, right. right. Like, I, I, cause I get a lot of people asking me, you know, over the last few years, especially, man, have you like lost, have you lost friends over, you know, like you're becoming a pretty well known voice against a lot of this stuff and pretty heterodox? Or have you lost friends? I'm like, I have not lost a single friendship. And that's because I'm, I'm quite selective with them to begin with, but not just that I'm also upfront to begin with. Right. I'm very, I've always been very open and honest. So sure. I've become more outspoken publicly, but with my friend group, like we all know where we stand, you know, like we have different views on different things, agreements, disagreements, whatever. And we like, we like having these conversations. We talk some of my best, I'm a Christian. Some of my best friends are atheists. Uh, Some, lots of my best friends are far more left leaning than I am. I'm probably the most libertarian out of my close friendship group, et cetera. And we can have, you know, fiery conversations and discussions and debates and whatever, but we all know we're coming from a good place. It's not like, oh, Zubi suddenly became like a whatever, or oh, that person is now a white supremacist. <laughs> or white something. supremacist right? adjacent. Yeah. yeah, you're you're just like, no, we just have different views and you know, we'll we'll laugh at things, you know. People will be like, Hey, Zubi, put your MAGA hat, put your MAGA hat away. We you know, like, whatever, you know, and it's just Do you have a MAGA hat? I don't, I actually don't. Although when I was in San Francisco, I really wanted to wear one just to like.
1: I did noisy. wear one. I don't own one. I went, I, I I was at CPAC and they had the golden Trump. So I sat down at the golden Trump thing.
0: Why is that a golden Trump?
1: I don't, I, okay. So this is a, this is a scandal in and of itself. Like they went nuts. Like, oh, there's a golden idol of Trump at CPAC. CPAC <laughs> put this. No, CPAC didn't do it. It was at Matt Brainerd's booth. So this guy, Matt Brainerd, brought a gimmick to his booth. That was a golden Trump statue, (laughs) like surfer Trump. He's wearing like American flag, you know, shorts, beach shorts or whatever. And he's, he's like, you know, doing like the thumbs up or peace signs, or I don't know, something like that. Some little silly thing, but it's just this obviously stupid plastic gold Trump, but people are like CPAC made that. No CPAC didn't. Uh One guy who had a booth who paid however many thousand dollars to have a booth brought it as a gimmick to attract people to his booth. And it worked obviously because it's stupid and it's fun. And it wasn't, everybody's like they're worshiping at the golden calf. And it's like, (laughs) it's so stupid. It was somebody's booth. It wasn't like, it's like this statue they erected in the middle of the thing. It's somebody's booth. But anyway, I was like, yeah, the gimmick worked. I was like, yeah, I want to get my picture taken with it. It's funny. It's hilarious. So I sat down and took my picture with it. And then all of a sudden inspiration struck. And I was over here talking to some of my buddies and one of them had a MAGA hat on and I was like, can I borrow your hat? And so I took his hat. He was like, yeah, cool. I put it on. I took a selfie. I took it off. I gave it back to him. That's the longest I've ever worn one of these things. Mm -hmm. And I put on Twitter how it started, how it's going and how it started (laughs) me sitting with the gold thing. And then how it's going, me wearing a, a MAGA hat, like it somehow like. Cast a magic spell on me and (laughs) broke my mind. And people went berserk. It was like the perfect (laughs) joke. It was so funny. People went berserk over this. They thought they literally people came out and called me all kinds of names. People started attacking me saying I definitely have lost my mind. I'm one of them now. You know, whatever. I don't even have. (laughs) <laughs> one of these hats. I just wore one for like 45 seconds to In take a selfie
0: joke. Yeah.
1: It's, yeah. It's, it was hilarious. And this is what, I mean, so I'm like you, right? I love doing that stuff. I think it's yeah. hilarious. <laughs> Why not? Like it's a cultural thing that's happening. Just lean Everything so this is another aspect right is everybody so serious like every symbol means like 9000 times more mm-hmm. than it actually means mm-hmm. right there's a million reasons it's like the stupid okay sign turning into white white supremacy <laughs> it's like everything has to mean a million times more than it actually means all of a sudden there's coded messages everywhere but that's mm-hmm. critical theory it's finding the coded messages what somebody really you're you're able to divine into what's really in their mind all the evil, dark thoughts they mm-hmm. secretly have under the surface that they're hiding from you all the time using critical methods. And it's like like it's like it's reading the tea leaves of everybody's mind based on symbols. And it, mm-hmm. people adopt symbols for all kinds of reasons. Maybe they support them. Maybe they kind of support them. Maybe they just ha- didn't want to get their head sunburned and they put on a hat, you know, and that was the hat they had. Maybe they think it's ironic. Maybe they think it's funny. Maybe they're just kind of like playing both sides of the fence there's all kinds of reasons that people adopt or, or make use of of various symbols and they of course want to lock in on the most nefarious evil one and say that it's this mm. you know huge indictment of your character and your project and everything else and it's just absurd it's just absurd like there's no again tolerance for like human variation or humor or it's fun. Personality, fun, fun. <laughs> fun. I mean, that's what I've said again and again is that, that what they hate in this, that resentment thing, what they hate the most is seeing people enjoy their lives. Mm-hmm. Right. They don't want to see people be happy. And this is whether you look at, you know, we can get all detailed and talk about Marcusa. you know, the critical theorist. We could talk about Lenin. Lenin said, you know, the more miserable the people are, the better, because that w- awakens a revolutionary spirit. If stuff sucks, they want to turn it over it's like, they actually want to make people miserable because if everybody's miserable, like they are, then we'll have our revolution. Mm -hmm. You know, we can have a new world order. That's not going to be the way it used to be. And people, this is where Marcusa talks. He says, people don't even realize the conditions of their servitude because people are convincing them that they're happy. (laughs) Like it's it's so
0: awful. It really is. I I think what's, one thing that strikes me as crazy is I think in where we are now, and I say this as someone who's, you know, grew up in the Middle East and has traveled around all over, you know, family background, originally from Nigeria. So I think when I look at the West, I, I look at it probably a bit more objectively than most people because it's not necessarily like the default way of doing everything for me. But one thing I find really peculiar is because oftentimes people say the West, you know, all the world is going crazy. And I'm like, nah, bro, it's just the West, you know, particularly the Anglosphere. Like, I'm like, a lot of a lot of these conversations and things are not happening. You know, if I showed my deadlift tweet to people in Nigeria, they wouldn't even understand it. Like, they wouldn't even get why, (laughs) right? They wouldn't even understand why it's funny. Right? They just be like, they read the first sentence and be like, I keep hearing about how biological men have no strength advantage over women. They would just be like, what do you mean no one's saying that like what are you talking about of course men are no women, one thinks right that. And then it's like oh I, I identified as a woman and they're like what do you mean like you're a man like i don't get right it's it, it, like to, for the humor <laughs> to even okay? work right yeah for the humor to even work you have to sort of be in a particular place if i showed that to people in 2008 it wouldn't have been funny because they'd be like what do you mean like i don't, I don't get this You need, you need a certain context the That's my
1: non-practicing it. black joke, which makes literally no sense. <laughs> yeah, you, at all. You need, it's just need... like words that I just put together, and like <laughs> catches people off guard. It's, just, it's ridiculous.
0: Yeah, it, it's it's very strange, and it does seem like, I think one part of it that is very disturbing is it seems like the greatest enemies to the West are within it. Right, mm-hmm. the, the threat is domestic. It's not it's not international it's not oh the threat is coming from this other country or whatever it's like there are people within the country within the USA determined to tear down the USA there are people in the UK determined to like just rip this whole thing down i don't i'm not really sure what they want to replace it with but well they aren't it, either y- yeah it it's like a it's 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 like a self attack which i think is Very concerning, especially on a generational level, because it's one thing if adults are doing this. But when you start seeing these ideas being pushed in schools, um, literally from little children, you know, and they're learning about all this stuff. And I'm just like, this is really bad. Like you do not want to like there's a good chance if this is not curtailed that the younger generation will end up being more racist Than like our generation or our parents' generation because they're literally being taught this stuff. You're sitting down, eight year olds, and you're telling the white kids that they need to somehow atone for being white. You're telling the boys that they are oppressive and they're part of something called the patriarchy and that they have systemic power over women and this and that. And you're telling black people that. You're somehow a second class citizen because the white people have this thing called white privilege. So they're always going to be inherently advantaged over you and the system is rigged against you and you have to work 10 times. All of that, Like I'm, I'm like, gosh, thank, thank God I never learned any of this stuff as a child because I, I don't know what my mentality would be like. I was just like, yo, I'm just here. Every, everyone's from everywhere, like, cool, I have friends of all different sorts. No one was taught any sort of victimhood or, or you're an oppressor or whatever, you're privileged, you're disadvantaged. It was just like, yo, you're all equal, you're all the same, like, work hard, have fun, be friends, cool, I'm good. And, that, that's, and that's been my mentality all the way, which is why I think with me in particular, not having grown up in – you know, there are some people who do grow up in much more sort of – um I don't know whether it's racially segregated or ideologically, whatever, you know, much more homogenous. In my case, it's always just been, I've always been surrounded by everybody. So for me in particular, it's very disturbing to see this, you know, just all the black, this white, that this, 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 I'm just like, guys, stop, man. Like this is, it's so much and it, it just never stops every single day. Like there are people, you, you go through their Twitter feed, every single thing is race, 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 race. I'm just like, stop. You, you can't, they can't you can't just have a conversation. You can't just say like this person every time, oh, it was, it was a white man, and it was a white woman, and it was a black man, and it was a – I'm just like, can you not a, – a person, right? There, there are times where, okay, you're trying to accurately describe someone. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? And, and it's useful to have certain descriptors. But they'll just bring it in when it has, has nothing to do with the story, has nothing to do with the situation, and it's just, and as soon as people see that, their brain goes, their brain makes it racial, right? If you if you yeah. see a new if you see a news headline where it says um, um, you know, man man kills, man kills two people in um, you know, double murder, right? Man man kills, but if it's you know, uh, white man kills, kills black man in whatever, black man kills white man, what right? It suddenly makes people think. Oh, this was a racial, yeah, yeah, incident. When, when, you know, I, I mean, great um, man, George Floyd,
1: mm-hmm. right?
0: The racialization of that. Mm-hmm. We to this day, there is no evidence that that had anything to do with racism. That's right, right. No evidence. It was. I don't believe it was even brought up in court. I don't think they even made the accusation that it had anything to do with racism. But people just took that and ran with it so hard that me even saying that, there's going to be people like, oh my gosh, what do you mean you're saying it had nothing to do with racism? Yeah, I'm exactly. Even, like, I'm just saying there's no evidence. You just saw that it was a white guy and a black guy, and so people's brains, and the way the media reported it, and the whole BLM thing, and I'm like, guys, cool. we don't even know. There's no there's no evidence that Derek Chauvin was racist. I agree that what he did was effed up. Like I spoke out about that early. Sure. But in terms of the racial narrative, um, that's a dangerous thing to throw out there which has consequences which we've which we've seen um when people start thinking that way and i I don't know when people will learn that lesson
1: no it's yeah it's really crazy i even had this happen to me recently not to like make a story about me that's really irrelevant somebody finally wrote like a proper hit piece on me and like kind of a big outlet or whatever and it was like so and so says whatever about my work or whatever and then it was like whatever the guy's name was i don't remember uh is like so-and-so who is black blah 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 like all of a sudden his opinion matters more it's like why did you put that in there it's like it's, it, it actually is jarring to read it it's like it doesn't need to be there It didn't add anything um and, and this is happening everywhere it's like you said it's like but that's that's where you know that thing everybody we're not allowed to say that robin DeAngelo is a critical race theorist anymore i think the narrative now is that she stole her ideas from critical race theory oh, or okay. something like this because they have to like her straight under the bus um, because she says it's such an easy target, but we can go back to real critical race theory if they want us to, I can do it. But she said, you know, the question is no longer did racism take place, but how did racism manifest in this situation? And so you see a white officer and you see a black uh, person getting arrested and you see things going down and it looks bad or maybe it is bad. And, well, how did racism manifest in that situation? Racism must be present. And that's what they've, that's what they've inculcated people to look for and to see, mm. you know, everywhere you go, you're supposed to see racism taking place. Like, um, I had a conversation recently. Yeah. I think this poor woman, lovely black actress in, in Los Angeles invited me on her podcast. It was when I had, you know, I changed my name on Twitter all the time. So, I, you know, there's this, <laughs> there's a the super straight thing. So I changed right. mine to James Lindsay <laughs> super anti-racist and um, it's like it's better than anti-racism, it's super anti-racism. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I had my name as that and she saw me talking about critical race theory all the time and she's like this woke black act- actress in LA and I was like, she's like, well, you come on my podcast and talk about critical race theory. And I was like, sure. Why not? You know, I like to have the conversation. I'm trying to figure out why she invited me. And then she tells me when I get on there, it's because I said I was super anti-racist. And I started talking. She's like, what is critical race theory? And I just bombed it, like just destroyed critical race theory. Yeah. And she's like, got this face like what? And it never came out. She never released the oh, conversation, no. which, is, oh, no. which is too bad. And I don't oh, want to put any no. pressure on her. Cause I understand. Yeah. Cause her community is going to, I don't mean black people. I mean, the yeah, yeah. woke community is going to wreck her. If mm-hmm. she talks to me. She's going to lose 75% of her friends, just like that other person told me. And so I, this conversation proceeds, though, and it's just like um, it's that same kind of mentality. It's And I asked her, it's like, you know, critical race theory would say that racism is taking you're a black woman and I'm a white man. So racism taking place in this conversation. Did you perceive it? Mm-hmm. And she was like, no. I was like, would you say that I've behaved in a racist way or reproduced racism with you and i could do the same thing with you but obviously you get the joke and she's like no and it's like there was this weird moment of like you know where you could kind of see the eyes kind of like cross and uncross where Mm. where it's like you know everything's not adding up and she was like you really at the end afterwards when the recording was off you really challenged me Mm. on some things mm. she was like i really had to keep my cool sometimes though which to her credit she did she never flipped yeah. out she never yelled at me never never called me names mm-hmm. but this is the thing is if racism is present in every situation where there's especially it's not even just cross-racial it's every situation yes. but that means that this perfectly reasonable conversation that i had with that woman was both motivated by racism and sexism mm-hmm. because she's a black woman and some intersectional thing where there's some dy- dynamic between white man and black woman specifically, yeah. and so it's like, but that's such like, what have you added by spending all your time looking for it? Where I even asked, it's not. Mm-hmm. Have you perceived it? No, I haven't. Do you think it's here? No, I don't. Critical race theory says it must be, and we have to keep looking till we find it. And then, of course, you know, if if everybody's white, you'd say, oh, well, it's exclusionary of of black people, or if everybody's of color or black or whatever it is, whatever the right word for the week is that you have to say, then you'd say, Oh, well that's because the whiteness like forced them to have their, their own, mm. their, you know, their own de-racialized racialized yes, group yes. where they can actually talk freely. And oh, yeah. this is, it's just so poisonous to say that racism is present in every situation. And our job is to now look for it. Mm-hmm. And I, I can't figure out after having that conversation with that, that lovely woman, what on earth it would add to go looking for it
0: yeah that's the thing i mean my biggest issue with it and it's 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 twofold number one is that it's just wrong like it's not factual it's not factually correct right it's it's actually just wrong right it's making certain assertions which are very very broad and you're just like no that's not right no all white people are not racist Yes, you can be racist against any group. Yes, like what, well, right? It, the 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 whole thing is just wrong. And then the second thing, and this really is the thing, is that it's purely negative, mm-hmm. right? It's purely negative. I've never heard anybody explain. Okay, what is the, what, what what is good? Like what what good has come out of critical race theory, right? How does this make how does this make your life better? Whether you are you're black, you're white, you're asian, you're mixed, whatever, how does this how does this make your life better? cuz i have a general theory um that if you're going to believe something that you cannot w- sort of like, you know, 100% empirically prove, let's say, right? you're going to have like a faith or a belief in something, at least pick something that makes your life better. Yeah, <laughs> at right? Pick, right. At least pick something right? that makes you live your life better rather than something that just makes it worse for everybody because it's yep. also just it's also it's just exhausting it's so tiring when when you're talking to someone who's really obsessed with this stuff and i'm just like dude this is this is tiring like can we just can Cock we rock. just chill Anything. you know well that's
1: because you lack <laughs> racial stamina that's the that.
0: that is a great term <laughs>
1: you lack racial stamina. that's robin d'angelo
0: that's an amazing term racial stamina yeah, wow. to have
1: those hard conversations. <laughs> That's why you get tired. It's amazing. It, but you know, this is rooted, you know, this is my job is to root this in the literature going back decades and they do. They talk that they say that the that, that the whole critical process is they they describe this. This is their own term for it. And they they talk positively about this like as it's the right way to do things all the time and they call it negative thinking. Wow. And they, they believe that the way that the utopia will emerge is by engaging in negative thinking about all of the problems in society until you take them apart. So when I went on Rogan last summer and he and I were talking about it, it's where I said, you know, some religions look up, they see God and they're aware of sin mm. and it makes them better people. And some religions look down, they focus on sin and they're only kind of vaguely aware of God. And that's mm-hmm. what this one is. So that's like what you said, if you're going to dive into a faith, based system of some kind or another, whatever, you know, loosely using the word faith. um, You should really pick one that's building, building you up. It's looking up, not looking down. It's not focused on this negative thinking all the time. And it's really, it is truly an upside down way to approach everything. It's like, oh, if we just focus on the negative, then the positive will eventually emerge. That's literally the heart of their philosophy. If we constantly focus on the negative, then we will get to the point where the positive can emerge. That's why uh, I've described it, and I think accurately, as being like alchemy rather than like actual chemistry or whatever. It's because their goal is to get to the positive by focusing on the negative, and that's totally bogus. Mm -hmm. I mean, like your whole brand is so positive. It's like I see your stuff on Twitter. (laughs) I see your stuff you put out, and it's always like positive, positive, positive. You're building people's lives up. Your life is built up itself. Like, you know, everything's great, and it's obvious where, you know – You said you're a Christian. You know Jesus said, "Judge them by their fruits." You can see what's going on. You know your life is is awesome. Everybody else is. All these other people are doing this critical stuff are miserable. It's like, why are you choosing? You can't. And this is an important (laughs) message: is you can choose. You don't have to choose to be miserable all the time. Mm
0: -hmm. And it's also, I think it's also looking forward rather than looking back. That's right. That's Um, right. You know, the past is like. There's no question. You know, a lot of people will sort of set up this straw man as if um you know certain people who are not on board with all of this like they they deny history you know that people are saying that oh racism does not exist at all or like oh slavery never happened or what i'm like bro nobody nobody across the political spectrum is saying that my point though is the past is immutable that's right. right. The, the past is dark. Any, any, you can find dark stuff in h- the history of every single country, right? You can find positive mm-hmm. stuff. You can find very dark stuff. And, but history, history is history, right? We weren't, we weren't alive. We didn't perpetrate it. We, we didn't do the things. Um, there's no white person in the USA right now who, who's a slave owner or who's own, you know, or who's even parents own slaves. There's no black person in the USA right now who, who was, who was a slave, or whatever right it's like this this is all in the past so we can acknowledge it and learn from it but let's focus on the present and the future you can acknowledge it and say okay that was bad that was bad that was bad but we can't change that so what can we do now to make sure we don't repeat these mistakes and we get on better as a society and as people and we treat each other more kindly and fairly and people have freedom and all of that good stuff which and to be fair as well, the, the crazy thing about it too is the USA and other countries have made such enormous strides in a relatively short space of time, and people don't want to acknowledge that. Like, people don't want That's to acknowledge right. anything good. They don't want to go, actually, you know what? Man, I had a tweet go viral where I said um, something like, racism is at an all-time low. Homophobia is at an all-time low. Sexism is at an all-time low. Blah, blah, blah. If that makes you angry, you're weird, or something like that. Yeah. The amount of hate, <laughs> the amount <laughs> of hate I got from that tweet for saying that racism and sexism were at an all-time low. Wow! Like, how dare were, you be positive? People were so. So you're saying it doesn't exist? Yeah. How dare uh. you, as a you as a black man? You're a disgrace to black people. You're denying who you are. I was like, you're reading a lot into this, bro. Like, where where is all this anger coming from? Like, why don't people want to hear anything? positive. Um, that to me is also just very very weird. I just don't like the the negativity cuz you know there's positive and there's negative in the world and there's yeah. a kernel there's a kernel of truth to most things. Yeah. But it's like okay, where are you going to put your focus? Where are you going to put your energy? Is it going to just be on the bad things in the world? I mean, you could go through a newspaper on any given day, go through the news, you can find horrible things happening. Every single day, multiple times a day. Yep. Oh, this is happening here. This is happening. You could just totally focus on it, and you could you could reach a conclusion that man, humanity is, human beings are terrible and you know cruel and this and that and we're just awful. And, and some people sort of reach that you know reach that conclusion. That's actually one of the precursors to a lot of people who do crazy things like school shootings. Right? They end up yep. thinking, oh wow, well, human beings are just that bad. But then you can also choose to look at the positive and be like, oh, wow, look at these people helping each other and look at this progress and look at this and just let me live in live in the real world and see, oh, actually, people are, people are generally decent, right? I'm not walking down the street and people are hurling abuse at me and trying to attack me or whatever. People are generally cordial and kind and polite and generous. And so I choose to focus more on that. It doesn't mean I deny the negative. Sure. I think it's important to be cognizant of it because it yeah. lets you know what to avoid. Um, But not to just sit there and dwell in it for years and decades and then pass that on to your children and pass it on to other people's children, so on and so forth.
1: Yeah, and that touches right into the the internal locus of control versus external locus of control. And that's where that resentment we were talking about earlier, you know, I said you can envision that guy and he's having a bad run of things and he's a bit of a schlub. And he sees like the guy who's just making it. He's got a nice suit. He's looking good. He's got money. he's maybe got the girl on his arm. Everything's awesome. And he looks over and he just thinks if the system wasn't so bad, that could be me right? Mm-hmm. So he's now put the the locus of control for what's happening in his life outside of himself. He said, Oh, it's circumstances. It's nothing to do with me. And so that I get it. It's the same thing as what you just said with positive and negative. You have to realize that there is a lot of stuff in life outside of your control. There is, there's, there are bad shakes. There are bad, you know, uh, people that, that do actually, you know, screw you over. Um, there are, sometimes material or or even system-based barriers that you have to work against or overcome. And certainly some of the people in the past have done a good job of that, making it, in many cases, easier for us. Mm. Uh, And the thing is, is you have to, there's, again, it's a choice, right? You can be cognizant of the fact that there's stuff outside your control without succumbing to everything's outside of my control. And it's the system itself that's the problem. And we have to attack the system. You can lean in and say, you know, No, you know, I can make choices. I can go to the gym and get, get in shape. I can improve my life. I can eat better. I can feel better. I can, you know, take control of the environment I'm in. This is Jordan Peterson's clean your room, right? Like physically, even though it's a metaphor for mentally, physically clean the space, order the space that you live in. Mm -hmm to gain that sense of mastery over something that is within your your reach, your sphere of influence. And so if you think about it in terms of a sphere of influence, you know, you should really be trying to lean into an internal locus of control. I have control over that, which is in my rate, my reach, my sphere of influence. Mm-hmm. Outside of that, you know, that's for me to have to deal with, you know, it's going to come, the storm is coming, you can't stop the hurricane or whatever it is. But you can you can take steps to prepare for that. And that kind of mentality is so much healthier. That's what you see kind of in the Stoics to a sort of extreme degree. which you see in the Taoists whose fundamental philosophy is go according to the situation. Uh, you know, I have a friend who is a Taoist. And when the pandemic came, you know, he's Chinese. So I don't know how he said it in Chinese because I don't speak Mandarin. But it was basically, you know it's like a storm it comes into the world you have to get out of its way you have to shield yourself and then it goes away and you come back out and resume your life you go according to the situation and it makes sense you know um so you, ha- you, you he didn't lose his sense of control over his own destiny because this big thing happened he said no you know i'm going to positively choose to whether it's retreat from certain situations or whatever the prudent action is to the best of his knowledge. Mm -hmm. And then when the circumstances seem to have improved or when knowledge has improved, I can come back out and I've retained control in uncontrollable circumstances. So that internal locus of control is psychologically healthy. An external locus of control is psychologically unhealthy. It's miserable. You feel like you're just getting beaten up and buffeted and anxiety and depression result very reliably. And it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy of negativity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at the end of that road or somewhere along it anyway, is that resentment that I'm saying. It's like you start to say, oh, it's the whole system against me. Mm-hmm. And that's where you're going to have these people who are going to shake out and start deciding they want to tear down society. And because misery loves company, they're going to try to suck other people into their orbit of, of this kind of negativity. And I think it's very important for people to realize that one of the most positive steps, like one of them is you can focus, you can be cognizant of the negative and focus on the positive, but you can also be cognizant of that, which is beyond your control while understanding just how much is within your control and leaning into that, like intentionally saying, no, I'm going to do things that I actually can have an impact on. Even if it's just to make a garden or to you know, to, to make my, my living space neater or nicer or whatever, um, to, to go to the gym and take control of my body a little bit or my diet and take control of my body, you know, watch out for eating disorders, of course, but, um, yeah, but you know, there's, and that's actually a pathological expression of the same thing. It's it's literally a pathological expression of feeling out of control. So you go to an extreme to try to regain a sense of control, but you can do it in a healthy way by seeing it as a beginning and that that will grow, you know, not to be all Christian on you, but the Bible says that, you know, you have been faithful over a few things. I shall make you a master over many things. That's, Mm -hmm. that is a Bible verse. I forgot which Bible verse it is. I used to be able to name it. Um, And that's how it, that's a mindset of growth, right? That starts with believing You've been a you know, you've been faithful over a few things. So that means that you are able to order your space, order your room or whatever it is that it's in your sphere of influence. Then your sphere of influence can grow. And so I think that there's a very important aspect here where people need we call it responsibility, um, whereas the woke call it being responsabilized somebody outside of them made them have to be responsible for stuff. They didn't want to have to be responsible for I've never uh, heard
0: that term before.
1: Oh, it's, it's terrible. I remember actually when Helen <laughs> found it the first time in their literature and she sent me these just like paragraphs of outrage and all of these quotes
0: from the literature, like, what is this? Wow. That's, that's the next level, man. James, it's been such an interesting conversation. I've been really looking forward to this. Um, where can people find more of your work and what should people check out?
1: So the website is newdiscourses.com. discourses.com. Uh, I have an encyclopedia there where I'm parsing all that language. Which, like we talked about at the beginning, uh, lots of articles, lots of podcasts, lots of videos, more videos coming. So check out that the book that is still out is cynical theories. Um, it's still doing really well. Awesome. Uh, check it out get a hold of it if you can and read it find me on social media if you want to follow new discourses I'm on almost every platform as at new discourses and if you want to follow me personally I tend to go by at conceptual James and I'm on I use that handle basically everywhere I can get it so that's where you can find me
0: awesome James thanks so much for coming on the show man really enjoyed the yeah,
1: conversation Zoobie. been looking forward to it so thanks
0: nice one put some respect on my name